0: Well, this morning we are continuing our journey in the book of Exodus, and we're finding ourselves in Exodus chapter 19. And so as we consider Exodus 19 this morning, um, I want us to focus in on verses 1 through 6. Verses 1 through 6. Let's get our Bibles, and let's stand, and let's turn and read um, that particular portion of Scripture this morning. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Lord, help us today as we consider your word, as we consider, Lord, uh, what you are teaching us, Lord, through your word. Help us to be teachable. And uh, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me to simply be your mouthpiece, that w- what is in this text of Scripture that you have breathed out, that your people would receive and receive it with joy, and apply it in the context of their lives. And Lord, for that person who may be listening today, uh, either who is in bondage to sin or is um, uh, curious about what it means to be a Christian, Lord, I, I just pray for your gospel, Lord, to have an impact in that life, that conversion may happen, but Lord, certainly seeds would be planted, and that you would reap the harvest in your time. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I have always been privileged with is uh, is doing ministry, but in particular ministry in other countries. Um, it's been a part of uh, of uh, kind of my, my heritage as a pastor, simply because I'm passionate about training other pastors. And it all began really um, when I went to Russia for the first time. And uh, it was many years ago, over 10 years ago. And uh, I remember the first time we got there, we got to our hotel, we, we slept, and we got up that next morning, we were going to have a day where we were going to tour Moscow in particular and we we had a guide that met us at the hotel and they were going to take us on the uh, the metro which is their underground or their BART system so to speak and we were going to visit some of the main sites and of course one of the big sites that you have to do when you're there in Moscow is Red Square and it happened to be men's day in Red Square which meant that many guys were kind of nostalgic and they were dressed in their old army uniforms and they were standing around you know, talking Russian things, singing Russian songs, and drinking lots of Russian vodka, right? So it was kind of a a strange kind of a context there. But I remember being there in the middle of Red Square, and and in front of me is Lenin's tomb, and behind Lenin's tomb is the Kremlin. Off to my left is St. Basil's Cathedral, the very famous colorful cathedral. And you know what I did? I closed my eyes. I closed my eyes and I, I kind of began to imagine all of the historical things that happened in that place. It's such a place of history, such a place of, of changes that took place um, among uh, the Russian people. Uh, imagine horses and people and kings and queens and dignitaries and soldiers and, and massacres taking place in that location. And then I was awakened from my historical reflection by my guide who said this. He said, Red Square is considered to be the heart of the Kremlin. And he says the Kremlin is considered to be the heart of Moscow. And Moscow is considered to be the heart of Russia. And then he said, to know and understand Russia, you must know and understand what has taken place in Red Square among the people. In other words, the events of Red Square have spilled over and shaped the entire country of Russia. And as I thought about our text today, I thought about Red Square because what we have here in chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, is considered to be the heart of the book of Exodus. To know and understand the book of Exodus We need to pay attention to what is revealed for us in these six verses, in particular verses 4 through 6. You might even say that this text is the heart of the Pentateuch, which would be the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. And some even argue that this little text is the heart of the Old Testament. That you cannot understand and appreciate the Old Testament without apprehending what God is revealing in Exodus 19 verses 1 through 6. Now, those are some very profound statements. But what we find here is that this being a heart text does give us an awareness, does give us understanding of the rest of the book of Exodus. Now, obviously one of the things that you're probably thinking to yourself if you have been a reader of the book of Exodus at all is that you know that chapter 20 is coming. And in chapter 20, we have this this mighty statement by God. It's called the 10 Commandments. I mean, wouldn't that be the heart of the book of Exodus? And to some degree they are, but the 10 Commandments are the fruit of what is taking place in chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. In other words, without these six verses, we would not have the Ten Commandments. To say it a little differently, you cannot understand chapter 20 of Exodus, which contains the Ten Commandments, without first understanding chapter 19. And what we have there in these six verses, in particular verses 4 through 6, is none other than the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this this Mosaic covenant is not a new covenant that did away with the other covenants. We would be mistaken to view it in that sense. No, the, the Mosaic covenant is an outgrowth and a development of the covenants that have already been established. In particular, God made a covenant with Abraham, and it was affirmed and reaffirmed by Isaac and Jacob. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, this is what we read, chapter one if you would turn there and just I want you to see a few verses here that are important for us in understanding what's going on. Exodus chapter one and verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And what we found is that at the beginning here of the book of Exodus, there were 70 family members, and ultimately they, grew, they multiplied into this incredible nation. Although, under slavery, uh, eventually, they, incredibly, they grew incredibly to a nation. And we go then back to Abraham's covenant, found in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. And, and in summary, it says, God says to Abraham, your offspring will be like the stars of heaven, and I will give you this land to possess. So it was a promise given to Abraham, reinforced uh, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And then we find in our text the Mosaic Covenant. But let's continue on in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2 and verses 23 through 25. This is what it says. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and with Jacob God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that's such an important summary statement there at the end of chapter 2. God hadn't forgotten His covenant. He remembered that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what stirred Him them to act on behalf of the Israelites there who were in bondage. Then in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, uh, again, God speaks to Moses to confirm his commitment to Israel by saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, there's something that is continuing here with these covenants, and there's something that is fresh and new with each one that comes along the way. And now as God speaks to Moses and Israel... He will add to that covenantal foundation and call Israel as a nation to live in a deeper covenantal relationship with Him. So He's pressing on in the covenant. He's pushing ahead in the covenant with some new instructions. And as we study this text, we need to see what God is calling us to do. And He's calling us to live our lives In covenant with Him. It's a call to live our lives in covenant with God. Now, just in a very basic sense, a covenant is a promise made between two parties, okay? And so far, God's covenant with His people has been passive. And what I mean by that is that God says, I will do this to you. I will make you a mighty nation. I will give you this land. But God's people don't have to do anything but trust God that will keep his promise to them. So it's it's, it's passive from the perspective of the Israelites. But with the Mosaic Covenant, God's people now take on an active role. They will be required to contribute to the covenant, namely to obey the voice of the Lord and to keep his covenant. Now, Let's just think about the structure of what's going on to see why we have what we have in chapter 19. The book of Exodus is divided into three parts. Chapter 1 through 18, we have God delivering or saving Israel. Chapters 19 through 24, we have God demanding or speaking to Israel. That's the section that we're in. In chapter 25 through uh, chapter 40, we see God dwelling or settling with his people. That's the whole instruction about the temple. Okay? So we have these three sections, and we are at the beginning now of this second section where God is going to speak. And what is he going to speak in this section? He's going to speak the law. He's going to lay that out for his people. He's going to show them what he is demanding, what he's expecting, how they are to live. So what we have in verses 1 through 6 really is an introduction or a preparation for chapter 19 through 24. It is seeking to communicate a framework for what is to come. It is a foundation so that we can understand God's revealing of this law. So as we look at our text, there's two parts. There's a covenant context, which is kind of like the setting for this Mosaic covenant. And then we have a covenant content, that is the actual content of the Mosaic Covenant. That is the statement that God makes, which is the Mosaic Covenant. So let's jump in now to uh, what I'm calling a covenant context here, where we're trying to, to take in some of the things that are said here in preparation for what God is going to say in this Mosaic Covenant. Now what happens to the children of Israel here before Sinai will have implications for them of lasting significance for the rest of their history. And these two verses really tip us off to that reality. These two verses give us three anchors or contexts that we uh, need to consider, and they need to be considered in in light of each other, and they lay a masterful foundation for our ability to grasp what God is doing with this Mosaic covenant. First of all, there is a chronological context. Look at verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So Moses had put a star in his planner to mark the day when God's people arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. It's a day of the third new moon. In other words, that tells us that they are roughly seven weeks now from crossing the Red Sea, right? Since they've left Egypt, it's been about seven weeks. Now, Numbers chapter 10 and verse 11 says that they left Sinai in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month. So from the point of chronology, we can learn the following. It takes them seven weeks to get from from, uh, the Red Sea to this particular location, and they're going to spend the next 11 months at that location, all right? So we have some chronological context that helps us understand what's going on. Secondly, we have a geographical context. Let's look at verse 2. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Now, remember, Rephidim is where Amalek comes and does battle with them, right? And then they go to the mountain and they come back and settle in Rephidim. So the people of Israel, they're in Rephidim, and they now journey further into the wilderness, and, and, uh, to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamp in the wilderness. The point here is this that their wilderness wandering is now coming to an end for a season. They left their encampment in Rephidim and journeyed through the wilderness until they settled down and encamped in the wilderness of Sinai. This is the region at the foot of the Mount Sinai. Now, it's been quite a journey for Israel, hasn't it? Every place along the way, they were confronted with the fact that they're not able to take care of their basic needs, that it was only the Lord that was able to meet their needs day by day. So what we need to see when we put both chronology and geography together is this. A lot has happened in seven weeks of wilderness wandering. God has put Israel through a whole lot of testing in order to teach them who he is and to teach them who they are. Friends, do you see the significance of what's going on and what we've experienced in these seven weeks? I highlight this for you at the Red Sea. It was the place of salvation. That's where they understood that they were not warriors. Only God was. At Marah, where they found the water bitter, it was the place of testing, where they understood that they could not provide water for themselves. Only God could do that. Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palms, was the place of rest. The wilderness of sin, where they were hungry, And God provided quail and manna from heaven. That's the place of provision. We have Masa and Meribah, where Moses strikes the rock. It's the place of warning. Raphidim, where they encountered Amalek, was the place of battle. Each step, friends, along the way, God was showing them that he is sufficient, that you can depend on me, you can trust me, you can lean on me, that I am your God. Now, isn't that what the Lord does with us? He brings trials and difficulties into our lives to prove our faith, not to discourage us, not to mock us, but to grow us through those trials so that we can see our own frailty and our utter dependence on Him and so that we can see that He is sufficient, that He is trustworthy to meet our need. So now as we come to Sinai, we will find it to be the place Of covenant. And friends, it's just helpful then for us to to grab a hold and see that God has taken them on this journey, and it's been a purposeful journey. But a lot has taken place, and now they're going to come to a place where they're going to sit for a while. So we have a chronological context, a geographical context, and we also have a theological context. Let me ask you a question. What is more disturbing, more trying, and more stressful then six moves in seven weeks. It's sitting still for 11 months. And sitting still for 11 months when you're supposed to be going to the promised land. For seven weeks the people had grumbled as they journeyed around the wilderness being tested by God. But now they'll face a new test, settling down, not moving. Are we there yet? I'm sure came out many, many times. I thought we were going to the promised land. How come we're here? Why don't we go straight to the promised land? Because God is not done working on them and preparing them for the promised land. They have been delivered from Egypt in order to go into the desert or into the wilderness to meet with God, to serve and to worship God on the mountain. Yes, the final destination was going to be the promised land, but if you remember... They were to go out and meet with God. So first of all, I want us to consider a theological context that has to do with the, the emphasis here on the mountain. And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12, we remind ourselves of what God said to Moses from the burning bush. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The idea there is worship God on this mountain. So yes, they were to ultimately go to the promised land, but they were going to go by way of the mountain. And here they are now, settling in into this mountain, into this place. Now friends, this is proof for Moses that God has been at work. Of course, Moses just had to look around and look back at the last seven weeks and some days before that and see God's hand of deliverance and even before that to see all the plagues. He he knew that what God said was true. But coming back to the mountain was that final sign, that final kind of statement of, look, I told you this, and I'm doing it, and here you are. So friends, not only does God bring Moses back to this mountain, but he brings the people of Israel back to this mountain. He had delivered Israel from Egypt so that they can meet with him in the wilderness. And friends, God doesn't just save us from our sinful junk, that we're in bondage to, as if deliverance is the end of the story. God didn't just save Israel, you know, he crossed the Red Sea and he's like, okay, see you later, I got you out of Egypt. That's not what he does. He didn't just say, I'm going to get you out. He says, I'm going to get you out for a purpose, right? So God saves us from our sins so that we can meet with him so that we can commune with him. Friends, God saves us from something for something. God saves us from our sin so that we can live our lives in freedom for his glory. So there is a theological significance to this location, to this mountain in particular, as this place of proof for Moses as well as for Israel, and then for us that God has been in control this whole time. Secondly, after the mountain, we have the ink. You say, what in the world are you talking about that? Now hear this. For the rest of the book of Exodus, it's quite a few chapters. For the whole of the book of Leviticus, and for the first 10 chapters of numbers, all of that ink, Will be spilled talking about what God is saying to the people at this mountain. They do not move from this place for 11 months. So we need to consider that in light of the ink that is spilled by Moses, because what we find here is that Exodus 19 uh, through 40 and Leviticus and Numbers 1 through 10 make up a significant portion of the book of Moses. This was an important time in the history of Israel. Clearly, this is a significant time for us to pay attention to that will fuel and be a foundation for Israel. Moses wants this second generation to learn about what happens here at the mountain, to learn about what happens when Israel meets with God. And so the emphasis here is that Israel must listen to the voice of the Lord. If he's speaking, he expects them to listen, except for the simple response that we have in chapter 19, verse 8, where it says, all that the Lord had spoken, we will do. That's pretty much the commentary that they make. It's all one-way traffic. The people of Israel don't speak. God is the one who's speaking. For 11 months, God is speaking. The people are listening. And you thought I was a long-winded preacher. So friends, we have the theological significance of the mountain. We have the theological significance of the ink that is spilled to write this this section. And then we also have the theological significance of the law. God is ultimately going to give the law next. Now, to most, if not many Christians, as well as non-Christians, mentioning the law sends shivers up and down our spine. For some reason, it seems to be kind of equated with rules and regulations that seem archaic and unnecessarily burdensome. I mean, if someone in society said, why don't you explain the law to me? What did God say when he was talking about, you know, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that? And it seems all ridiculous. I think we kind of shudder. We're like, oh, I don't know. I know we're under grace. You know, we kind of moved on from that. But friends, we have to be very, very careful. The, the, the people imagine that the law was given by God to give them further bondage. <laughs> and when we think of it in light of the book of Exodus, that is rather ridiculous, isn't it? God has delivered Israel from Egypt, from their bondage. To think that God would now want to put them back in bondage, so to speak, is ridiculous. God is not wanting to put them in bondage. God is wanting to liberate them. And liberation, friends, comes by God speaking and giving clarity about how we need to live. So just simply put, when we think about gospel and we think about law, the gospel refers to what God has done for his people. Right? God has delivered his people. That's what we've already seen. The law refers to what God calls his people to do. Right? We make those distinctions. So God has delivered his people, and now he will instruct them how to live. And this is really the emphasis of the uh, Mosaic covenant. This is where it's going. This is what makes it different. So we move now from this covenant context to the covenant content to see what the actual content of this Mosaic covenant is. The Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, right? So Moses has set uh, the covenant in this chronological, geographical, theological context, and he's now going to reveal what God is saying. And it really divides, again, naturally into three parts. There's grace, (coughs) there's responsibility, and there's identity. First of all, a foundation of grace. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So, as God begins to speak about his covenant, he begins by laying a foundation of grace and he wants his children to remember some things. He says, You yourselves have seen. By the way, you yourselves is not good English, okay? Um, And and this Bible, Old Testament, wasn't written in English. It's a translation from Hebrew. And so we're going to get some of the nuance of Hebrew there. And it's a Hebrew mechanism to say, look, you know this. You've seen this. You have, in a sense, front row seats to what you've seen take place. And so I want you to remember what you've seen. But what have they seen? They've seen, first of all, what God did his divine judgment, what I did to the Egyptians. Well, What did he do to the Egyptians? Well, he terrified them with plagues, especially the death of the firstborn. And in chapter 14, this is what we read, verses 30 through 31. Oh, it's right there. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Now, they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So God reminds Israel of the judgment that he rendered to the Egyptians, a judgment, hear this, that Israel also deserved because of their own sinfulness. But God heard their cries. He remembered his covenant with them and so dealt with them with mercy. What God did. Secondly, how God did it. Divine deliverance. How I bore you on eagles' wings. Well, how did Israel get out of Egypt? They didn't rally together, engage in terrorism for 40 years so as to unsettle the Egyptian government. They didn't form their own money or overthrow Pharaoh or launch out a military expedition into the wilderness. No, it was all God's doing. He says, I bore you on eagles' wings. Now, if you are a Lord of the Rings fan or a Hobbit fan, you will know that at the end of the Hobbit trilogy, it was was the eagles that came in and saved the day. Now, of course, if you're actually thinking it through, you're thinking, well, why didn't they just start with that? It would have been much easier for the eagles to come in and save the day. Why did they have to go through all this suffering? Well, isn't that what God is doing with His people? He's having them walk on a journey, and He's going to deliver them in His timing and according to His plan. But this is a direct link. What they're doing there in The Hobbit is a direct link to this biblical metaphor, and it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture that Israel would have understood, especially in the the desert. The mother eagles would would encourage their eaglets out of the nest. They would let them fall, and before they would hit the ground, because they're trying to get them to fly, they would come and they would swoop underneath them, and they would pick them up and take them up again. And they would do this repeatedly until the, the chicks were able to actually fly. Now listen to the words of Moses in his final song at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. It's going to be up there on your screen. This is really helpful, I think, to see how this is used. Beginning at verse 9, "...but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage." He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. See, so this is God. How did he do it? He came and he lifted them up out from that bondage and he placed them in this place of safety. And that's what God says he did for Israel. It's a picture of his loving, caring deliverance. Surrounded by danger, a difficult journey, the appearance of death all around, but God, because of his covenant, he's a covenant-keeping God, he's been present the whole time. He's been watching and caring for his children, and he brings them out, he delivers them. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 68, verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily Bears us up. It's the same kind of image. It's a beautiful image, friends. So, what did God do? Divine judgment. How did God do it? Divine deliverance as eagles' wings. Eagles, plural, by the way. It's not one eagle, it's multiple eagles coming in and bearing Israel up. Number three, why did God do it? And I'm going to say it's divine drawing. It says at the end of this verse, how I brought you to myself. See, God always had his plan to bring his people to himself. It was all God. Israel was doing nothing to deserve his kindness. God is orchestrating the events, even through the suffering, even through the trial, even through the bondage and slavery they were going through. God was still in this process of working his will to draw those people his people to himself. And Moses is reminding, uh, sorry, God is reminding Moses to tell Israel to remember this. See why? Because this is all foundational. This is all foundational to help them understand. Now, we flash forward to the New Testament. We see the same thing happening. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me, what? Draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So there's this drawing aspect of God that God does with his children, and God is still drawing people to himself today. He's bringing them out of slavery so that they can meet with him. Now, friends, it helps us then to realize that there's a central focus. And sometimes we miss the central focus, but the focus is not so much about the prospect of heaven as it is about the prospect of God himself. So we move from a foundation of grace to what I'm calling a faithful responsibility. Because this is where things change now. He says now therefore if if you will indeed obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant then, right? Now some might think to themselves, I like what you're saying. But when I look at verse 5, it sure does sound like God is saying, if you obey me, then I will bless you. It sure does sound like God saying, if you obey me, then you will be my people, then I will redeem you. In other words, they're saying to obey equals salvation. That God will bless us with salvation if we obey his voice and keep his commandments. But friends, let me just say it very boldly here. That is not what God is saying here. God has just finished saying to his people, you had nothing to do with your salvation. I did it. I brought judgment on the Egyptians. I bore you as uh, on eagle's wings. I drew you to myself. I delivered you. I saved you. You had nothing to do with that. So then to somehow shift gears and say, But now, in order to be saved, you have to obey these things, totally contradicts what God is saying here. There's nothing in verses 3 through 4 that indicates we have done anything to bring about our salvation. So it cannot mean that obedience and keeping covenant are the means of salvation. It must mean something else. And it's worth us taking a moment to identify some of the widely accepted mistakes or faulty ideas that we can often encounter when it comes to this. I'd like to highlight five of them, and I try to kind of allocate them in certain categories so that it would be a little bit more understandable. First of all, there is the unchurched view. And you ask your typical unchurched unbeliever what their view of Christianity is, or even what their view of most religions are, and it basically is this. You are saved by your works. know you do good all your life, then God is going to accept you. Your obedience then is the basis of your salvation, all right? God will let you into heaven because your good works outweigh your bad works and so on and so forth, right? Secondly, there is what I'm calling the Catholic view. You're not saved by works alone, but we are saved by faith plus works. Or maybe I should say, you're not saved by faith alone, but you're saved by faith plus works. Okay? In other words, you might say, I've exercised faith. You might actually go through the waters of baptism in some way, shape, or form, but you still have to perform good deeds. And if you are faithful in that, you might be let in. It's a Catholic view. And there's the Arminian view. Arminian is a form of uh, theological persuasion. And they would say this, you're saved by faith, but then you're kept in your salvation by your obedience. They would say that you can be saved, but you can lose that salvation because you are no longer obedient to God. So you can see the tension that's going on here. In fact, all three of these first um, descriptions here, when you step into your, I might say, new relationship with God, you're you're, you're still in bondage. You're still trying to prove yourself. You're still hoping that you'll get in. You're still fearful that your works, that your obedience, will, will be the means by which ultimately you will be saved. Then there is two more, and I've tried to bring them down to, to simple names, but it wouldn't do, so I put it this way. Uh, the you're under grace view. And it is, this one says you are saved by faith, and you're done with works and obedience. They don't matter. They're optional. In other words, you know what? God has granted you grace, and yes, He's given you the Word, but don't worry about it. Don't worry about it if you Mess up here and mess up there. You're all, you're just under grace. And so the word of God is kind of diminished. Um, And quite frankly, there are many people that would view American Christianity in that sense, that all we believe is, you know, once saved, always saved. And they kind of take this approach, you know, I made a profession of faith. Well, now I've got my ticket to heaven. I can live like I want because I've got guaranteed entrance. I got my ticket that when the ship uh, sails, I can get on because I walked an aisle or whatever it might be. And there's no thought about the need for obedience to the Word of God at all. And then the last one, kind of is similar to it, but it's, it's a little bit more mystical. And it's the, the all-you-need-is-the-spirit view. In other words, you're saved by faith. You're saved by grace. But if you're a new covenant Christian, you don't have anything to do with the law anymore. It's the Spirit that guides you. In other words, if the Holy Spirit tells you to do something, that's what you should do. And so there's a diminished view of the Word of God. The Word of God, oh yeah, it's important, it's all part of the plan, but look, if if you experience something the Holy Spirit's telling you to do, He's speaking to you. You've got to listen to Him. Now friends, for them, the Word of God is secondary to the guidance that you perceive or feel within yourself. There's this idea of saying, don't let the Word of God hold you back. Live freely in the Spirit. My friends, when we come to the Scriptures, we actually allow them to teach what they are saying, we'll find that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation, but we are called to live our lives in obedience out of that foundation of grace. Our obedience doesn't contribute to our conversion, to our salvation. It is the fruit of that. Now, if we flash forward to the New Testament, and in particular Paul's writings, we see a similar formula. You've probably heard this before, but it's indicatives followed by imperatives. An indicative, they're statements about what God has done and how He did it and what that means for you. Okay? So they're descriptive, they're explanations. Those are indicatives. Then there are imperatives, and these are statements of instruction. And command based on the, ind- the indicative. So these are commands, these are expectations that he has for you. And then, uh, well, so here in Exodus, the formula is this remember what God has done for you. This is the indicative. Therefore, listen, keep, and live out your identity. That's, that's really the formula that we have here. If we j- jump into Paul's writings, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 are the indicatives. This is who you are in Christ. I'm being very, very simplistic here. But then the imperatives come out in verses or chapter 4 uh, through 6. Therefore, walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. The calling is chapters 1 through 3. Now, live this out. Here are the commanded ways to do that. Right? Love your family. Love your wife. All those things are laid out there. These are imperatives that are built on the indicatives. The book of Romans is the same way. The first 11 chapters are indicatives. This is the gospel. This is what God has done. Romans 12. Begins the imperatives. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. So there's this, there's this hinge. There's this transition taking place. He moves from these indicatives to these imperatives. And that is what we're finding happening here in our text. There's a foundation here of grace. And built on that, then, are these Instructions to be faithful in your responsibility, to listen to my voice, and to keep the covenant. But notice also a fruitful identity. And I think this is really helpful, and we can get kind of messed up in our thinking about this too. So we've got to be careful. As I mentioned, we must not think that there is some order taking place here as if it's only when Israel obeys God's voice and keeps his covenant that the following realities are true. Now, Scripture is clear that they are already these things, but to the the degree that they are faithful to obey God's voice and keep His covenant is the degree to how bright they will shine in their testimony to the nations around them that they serve a great God. Let me try and put this in more New Testament terms. If you are a child of God, He has declared you righteous. You are in His eyes already holy. You can't get any holier than you are now. Why? Because you're covered with the blood of Christ. You're clothed with His righteousness. But He also says then, be holy because you are holy. Well, if I'm already holy, why do I need to be holy? Because He's saying, now I want you to live what you are. I don't want you to say, well, I want you to somehow live holy, and then we'll see whether or not you're good enough to actually receive this conversion. He says, no, you're already converted, you're already saved, you're already brought in, you're already holy, now live like it. So we are to look at the following three statements as statements of Israel's identity because they have been the recipients of God's grace. He's saying, keep the law and you will be what I made you for. He made you to be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, A holy nation. Friends, this is not something you're striving for that you are not. This is something that you are. This is what he's saying to the Israelites. This is who you are. So, first of all, they are a precious people. It says here, a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God is then this king who reigns over his kingdom. All the earth belongs to him. It all belongs to God. But in that earth, in that kingdom, are his people Israel. They are his treasured possession. They are the most valuable personal property of the Lord in all his kingdom. As such, a king may rule a kingdom, but his most valuable possessions he will keep in his own chambers close to him. This is how much he cherishes his children. Now, just think about the, the, the very famous John three sixteen. We probably can all quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God loves the people of the world so much that he sends his son as a sacrifice for their sins. But God treasures... The whosoever that believe in him. In other words, the whosoever are a subset of all the peoples. These are the ones that God ultimately treasures. And if you're a child of God today, if you're a follower of Christ today, this is a description of you. He treasures you out of all the people, He is exclusive. He makes a distinction. He values you. You are his treasured possession. Friends, that's powerful, and that's helpful. Secondly, not only are you a precious people, but you're also a priestly people. You should be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, friends, a priest never acts only on behalf of himself, but always also for his people. He is then taking a mediating role between God and his people. So when he goes to offer sacrifices, certainly he is included as one of the people, but he's going representing the people. You get that? So in that sense, Israel, by virtue of God's covenant, is commissioned to act as a mediator of God's revelation to the peoples. They are the missionary agents of the good news of Yahweh. So for us, it means that as Christians, we are constantly giving testimony to the good news of Jesus Christ. We're to live a Christ-like life before the nations. We are to teach God's truth to the nations. We're to represent and reflect God and his gospel to the nations. Let me ask you, is that what you're doing? Right now, in this COVID restriction? Right now, as we're moving to elections and things are getting more and more polarized, right now, as you're talking to your neighbor outside, as something happens, I don't know what, are you thinking that you have been placed here on this earth as a missionary agent, as a priestly people, to point them to Christ? A priestly people and then a peculiar people. Of course, that's the King James language kicking in there, right? But the idea is a holy nation. The idea of a peculiar people doesn't mean that you have to think and act and behave strangely. I remember when I was in college, you know, someone, he, he, he did not want to have any kind of worldly kind of inclinations, and so he would just wear drab clothes. I mean, he would be he would dress nice, he have like a suit on and a tie and stuff like that, but never drawing any attention to himself. and Like, well, what's what's wrong? He says, Well, uh, we're called to be peculiar people. And we're just kind of like, I think you've kind of messed up understanding what that word peculiar means. The word peculiar means unique, set apart, special. They are a holy people. And what we have the privilege of doing, friends, is living life in such a way as to reflect an amazing attribute or characteristic of God, and that is His. Holiness. See, we think of his holiness as kind of a a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, it's a wonderful thing, it's a joyful thing. And yet we are to be holy because that's what we are. Now, as we move to the New Testament and think about what Paul tells the church in 1 Peter, here's what we find. So this is now directed at the church. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9, but you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is who we are. So that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness, out of our bondage, out of our slavery, into the marvelous light of freedom with him. And Moses, God says to Moses, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the Mosaic covenant. Now I want to draw three applications, implications for us in particular out of this text. We've touched on them. But I want to tease them out just a little bit more for us. First of all, I think as we come through this passage and we're reflecting on, on how does it direct us, it does cause us to think that we have a responsibility to meet with God. So God called Israel out of Egypt in order to meet with him. And God has called us out of our sinful bondage so that we can also meet with Him. But friends, I fear I fear that in particular, American Christianity can be so easily settled with the first part of the covenant formula, that is God's deliverance, um, his granting of us salvation, that we can fail to take ownership of the second part of the covenant formula. That's our responsibility to meet with him, to listen to him, and to keep his covenants, and to live out these characteristics that he Wants us to shine in the context of this world. See, we can be so settled with our conversion that we kind of say, okay, now I've got the, I can live my life and and not be in pursuit of meeting with Him. And I think sometimes we we view the meeting with God as somewhat legalistic or uh, kind of harsh and, well, you know, do I have to do that? And and the, the question is this. When do you meet with God? You might say, well, Pastor Adam, listen to your sermon right now. Okay, it's good. I'm glad you're listening. It's wonderful. But when do you meet God alone? Because you want to. Big difference. Just think of of all that God has done for you. But now that you've got your conversion taken care of, and of course, you want to protect them. You want to do all these things for you. Is that the extent of your relationship? Is, is all what I can get from God? Or is there genuinely a desire now, having been brought out to meet with Him? And this is what I was saying earlier, friends. Sometimes we can look back and we can be thankful about our conversion, and we should be. And we can be thankful about the prospect of heaven, and we should be. But, friends, The central focus ultimately is not just our salvation, it's not heaven or other things, it is Christ himself. It is meeting with him. We are on a journey right now where God is leading us through paths on that journey, and we can be so focused on a variety of things and neglect him. And He's the one that's wanting to teach us. He's the one that's wanting to shape us. He's the one that's wanting to mold us. And so we can be like Israel. That's, you know, all right, we've we've got our freedom now. Can you just get us to the promised land? God says, wait a second, I called you out to meet with me. I breathe life into your soul. If you're listening today, if you're a follower of Christ today, God's saying, I breathe life into your soul so that we can have communion together. I want you, he says. Come meet with me. Come spend time with me. Come learn from me. Allow me to, to impact you. So what does it look like? Oh, well, when do you meet with God? Once a week? Every day? Occasionally? What does it look like to meet with God? It's time in the Word. It's time in prayer. It's time for reflection and meditation. am not going to put some kind of rigid parameter on it, but it involves all of those things. I love Psalm 37:4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And we, we, we just kind of drift over to the last part of that, say, oh, the, the desires of my heart. If I do this, then God will give me the desires of my heart. But the point of that psalm, The point of that statement in that psalm is not so that you can do something so that you can get what you want. The point is that you are delighting in him. You're like that tree planted by the rivers of water that is delighting in the word of God. You're bearing fruit. It's being prospered. And so what happens then in this verse, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give the desires of your heart, is that when you delight in the Lord, guess what happens? Your desires change. And they are conformed to his will. He is fashioning and shaping you. So that having delighted in him, his desires now become your desires. That only happens, though, when we meet with God. And this happens, or it doesn't happen, however you want to say it, if we simply view God as the one that we go to to get the stuff done that we want to get done. Rather than saying, God, this is the circumstance. You have walked me into this, on this journey, and I want to glorify you. I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to delight in you. I'm I'm going to seek wisdom from you so I can live my life in a way that would please you. Now, we all have desires, but guess what? We want to conform those desires, and we want to delight in God so that those desires can be fashioned and shaped that they would ultimately please Him. And so to meet with God, then, I want to put it this way, is to lean into Christ. It's not just to say, okay, I'm a Christian now, and I'm doing these duties, but it's actually to lean into Him. It's actually to fellowship with Him. It's actually to, to spend time with Him. With him. Friends, I just plead with you. It's so easy for that aspect of our walk to be diminished because we simply delight in what God has done for us and we're confident in his promises. Are we faithful as it relates to a covenant relationship with God to carry out our responsibility? Secondly, a call to wait on God. Waiting is not easy, is it? I mean, here we are, what? 7 months in to sheltering place, not able to meet physically. Who knows when that's going to happen? At least with, you know, back to normal, right? Waiting's hard. No one likes to do it. Yet like Israel, God often calls us to wait. It could be waiting for a job or a relationship to be restored or a medical procedure to take place. It could be a time of grieving, a time of suffering, a time of confusion. And in the midst of all that, we're just waiting. It could be waiting uh, because of a consequence of sin, a time of financial drought or a time of frustration. But often it is in that waiting that God is teaching us. He's teaching us about himself. He's teaching uh, us about ourselves. So don't don't waste a moment in your waiting by grumbling and complaining to God. Instead, recognize that God is keeping his promise. (laughs) He is covenantally faithful to you. And your time of waiting is a time of nurture, of teaching, of instruction, and help. So there's a call to wait by faith with our eyes fixed on Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. So if you're in a time of waiting, don't give in to grumbling. Instead, see it as a time of God's work of sanctification to be active in your life. Isaiah 40:31. I used to quote this when I was in high school or all of our teams would would gather together before a game and we would quote this scripture. And so there's actually some words that are not in the original language that should be there because they're a part of my memory now, right? But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the extra biblical content would be, go team, right? That's how it would play out but they that wait upon the Lord. God, whether it's waiting or leaning on him, just resting in him, we find him working in us, teaching and shaping us and molding us. And friends, that's a wonderful thing. So a call to meet with God, a call to wait on God. And finally here, a call to point to God. Do you know who you are? Well, based on this text, we've been given three descriptions of who we are. You're a treasured possession. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. If we jump to the New Testament, we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. We are in Christ. This is who we are. We are sons. We're part of God's family. We've been welcomed in. But get this, you are those things so that, it's true, this is who you are, but there's a reason you are those things. Look at um, this, this passage that we, we, just, we just looked at, and that was uh, um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It's not going to be up on your screens. But I want you to notice this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So your identity is the means by which you are proclaiming to those around you that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That this God of the Bible is not some ogre, some meanie, some guy who's there to rain on your parade, but he's the God who delivers. And he's the God who draws you in. And he's the God who welcomes you as one of the family. And he's the one who sustains you and provides for you. But he's the one also that you want to please, that you want to honor with your life choices and your thinking and your habits. So, friends, it all boils down to, are you living out your life in light of your identity? Are you living your life seeking to proclaim the excellencies of Him who saved you? These identifications are the means by which you are demonstrating to the world around you how glorious God is. In Matthew chapter 5, Christ says it this way, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's the same, same idea, the same concept. You are the light of the world, not you have to be the light. You already are the light. Now, what are you doing with that light? See, this is all a reflection of this union we have with Christ. So, friends, as we've reflected over the beginnings of chapter 19 and just seen that the entrance now of this Mosaic covenant, what we realize is that God is faithful to deliver his children. But now, in this covenant, there is an expectation. It's not an expectation that is the means of salvation. But it is an expectation that is the fruit of that salvation, that, that lives out of that foundation. And It's the same for us today. We are living in a new covenant. What Jesus Christ did on the cross in paying for our sins is the foundation uh, uh, upon which we now live. We live our lives out of the gospel. We live our lives because of the gospel. Our behavior, our works are the fruit of the gospel and are evidence of the genuineness of our faith. We're not trying to work our way towards salvation. We're trying to work out our salvation. In other words, we're already saved, and we're working it out. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to live in a way that would honor and please the Lord and seek to glorify Him and proclaim His name to everyone around us. Friends, this is important. This will spill over into the the rest of this chapter, into the rest of this book, into the rest of the Pentateuch, into the rest of the Old Testament, and ultimately will drive a line right into the heart of the New Testament with the gospel of Jesus Christ and him hanging on the cross for us. We are such a privileged people. Let us call people to see God by the way we live, by the things we say, and by where our hope is found. Lord, help us today to consider your truth. We have been given this wonderful text, Lord, a small text, just even three verses of of covenant. And yet, Lord, even in those few verses, we see this wonderful truth that you are a God who delivers, that you're a God who, who, who rightly judges, that you are a God who draws Um, his people to himself. And Lord, having having been delivered, Lord, you now expect us to live our lives by meeting with you and living out of that relationship and proclaiming to others, Lord, through and out of that relationship with you. Help us, Lord, to reimagine that in our own context. To ask ourselves the questions, what is it that we should be doing that would put us in the right place, that we can be meeting with God and that we can be um, proclaiming uh, His glories to those that are around us. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment, Lord. Help us to be the church you've called us to be. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.